The following is a message from Christ the King Presbyterian Church in Roanoke, Virginia. For more information about the ministry of Christ the King, please visit us at ctkroanoke.org. morning. <clears throat> it's good to see everyone here this morning. For those of you who don't know, I'm Tobias. I'm, I'm one of the associate pastors here at Christ the King. <clears throat> and um, this morning we're going to be continuing with our series in uh, the letters of John. And we're in uh, the first letter this morning. I don't know about you, but I've just really enjoyed uh, getting into this already. These letters are so challenging and rich, and I hope that we'll see that uh, this morning as well. <clears throat> uh, this morning we're going to be looking at 1 John 2, uh, verses 3 through 11. <clears throat> so let's go ahead and read that now, and let's remember this is uh, God's holy inspired word. Uh, let's, let's listen to it carefully. And by this we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. O oh, gracious and mighty God, we once again bow before you creator of heaven and earth, creator of all things seen and unseen. We bow before you uh, as creatures. And we thank you that you have been faithful to your promises to redeem sinners, to call them to yourself, to make them a part of your family not because of anything that we have done, but because of your love and grace. Lord, we thank you so much for the preservation of your word. We thank you for this letter. We thank you for what it teaches us, how it challenges us. Father, this morning we ask that you will use these words, that you will drive them deep home within us, we ask, Lord, that you will change us by your word. Give us a, a greater picture of who you are and what you have done and what you call us to. Change us by these words, Lord. 
And Father, I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, a couple of weeks ago, uh, in Penny's sermon on three beautiful words, we considered uh, 1 John uh, chapter 1, verse 5 through uh, 2, 2. And in that passage, the Apostle John's focus was notably on sin, if you remember. In fact, um, he refers to sin nine times in the space of just seven verses. And one of the things that focus on sin did uh, was to underscore just how precious, how beautiful <clears throat> those three simple words, you are forgiven, are to us as sinners. And Penny brought that up beautifully. But another thing that focus on sin did was to highlight a tension in the Christian life that we all face and that we'll all continue to face until the Lord returns and gives us everlasting rest. And that's the tension that we feel as those who claim to walk in fellowship with the Lord, even while we continue to wrestle with sin and disobedience. It's the tension that we feel between the new reality of our identity as children of light, as the Apostle Paul calls us in Ephesians 5.8, and the expectation of holiness that that entails, and the ongoing reality of indwelling sin, and the battle that we will and must wage against it until the Lord returns. But unfortunately, as we face this tension, I think oftentimes we mistakenly emphasize one of these things over the other. We either focus on the new, our, our new identity in Christ and on His grace, in a way that minimizes or even rejects the obligation we have to live in righteousness and to stop sinning. Or we inordinately focus on our our remaining sinfulness to the point of beating ourselves up, forgetting, perhaps even disbelieving, that our sanctification, like our justification, is part of his gracious work in our lives. And I think that the result is that we oftentimes end up living either with a false sense of assurance that we're his children, even though we don't act like it. Or we live defeated with no assurance that we're his at all. And you know, I think John understood this. And I think this is why we saw him bring that passage to a close in the first two verses of chapter 2. We heard him say to his readers that he's writing to them so that they won't sin. After all, they're children of light. But then immediately, like a compassionate pastor, fully aware of their weakness and propensity to sin, we heard him assure them that if they do sin, They have an advocate before the Father and the person of Jesus Christ. And friends, as sinners, to know that Jesus is our advocate is the only thing that will bring us any comfort as we face the tension inherent in the Christian life. And yet there's something that we have to stop and consider here. You see, having an advocate in Jesus implies that we know him. 
It implies that we have a relationship with him, doesn't it? And so how do we know that we truly know Jesus? Well, in our passage this morning, John provides us with an answer to this question in the form of a simple diagnostic test, which is meant to cause us to reflect on our behavior in light of the Lord's commandments, both old and new. And so let's turn our attention to the first part of this passage. And I want you to notice right off the bat uh, what John says in verses 3 through 5. He says this. He says, And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. So here we have John framing up this diagnostic uh, both positively and negatively. On the positive side, he tells us that if we keep the Lord's commandments, we can be assured that we know him. On the other hand, on the negative side, he tells us that if we fail to keep the Lord's commandments while claiming to know him, we prove ourselves to be liars. You know, all this makes sense. After all, earlier in John's gospel, Jesus said to his disciples in his farewell address in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And notice too what John said, or Jesus said to the Jewish hypocrites, even earlier in John's gospel in John 8, 55, he said, but you have not known me, known him. I know him. If I were to say I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Now, did you catch what Jesus said right at the end there? He says, but I know him, and I keep his word. You see, Jesus understood that there's a necessary connection between knowing God and keeping his word. And I think that's because he understood that genuine relationships have what the New Testament commentator Constantine Campbell calls volitional power. Which simply means that when we claim to truly know someone, to have a relationship with them, especially when that someone is the Lord, we desire to do what they ask. Volitional power. And so I don't think that what John's saying in the first three verses of our passage this morning should come as any surprise to us as followers of Jesus. After all, keeping the Lord's commandments, not as a means of currying the Lord's favor and somehow earning our salvation through obedience, not at all, but as a genuine expression of our love for him and as evidence that we have truly come to know him, friends, these things are rooted in the teaching and example of Jesus himself. And friends, John's urging us to face this squarely, to reflect honestly on our behavior in light of our profession. Because, friends, to be proved a liar in the sight of God isn't something we can simply shrug off. It's a terrible thing. Listen to how definitively the Apostle Paul condemned the hypocrites, those he called empty talkers and deceivers in Titus 1.16. He says, they profess to know God, but they deny him 
by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Friends, we need to hear this and take it to heart. And yet we also need to be careful here, don't we? After all, it would be easy for us in our penchant for legalism to misconstrue what John's saying as a call to keep the Lord's commandments without fail in order to have any assurance that we know Jesus. But that's not what he's saying at all. Friends, we need to keep in mind that John's call for us to keep the Lord's commandments is a call given to us as sinners, to those who he recognized struggle with and would continue to struggle with indwelling sin. And so his call doesn't carry with it an expectation of perfect obedience. Listen to what Calvin says about this passage. I think it's helpful. He says, John doesn't mean that those who wholly satisfy the law keep his commandments. For, for no such instance exists in the world. But those who strive according to the capacity of human infirmity to form their life in obedience to God. In other words, what John has in mind here is what Campbell calls a disposition of obedience rather than a disposition of rebellion. But perhaps you're thinking to yourself, okay, Tobias, I see that. But even so, what commandments does John have in mind here? What's he getting at? Well, I think it's important for us to pay attention to how John himself answers this question. <clears throat> and so I want you all to take a, a look at what he says just a little later on in 1 John 3, 23. He says this, he says, And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Friends, to me, this is the clearest expression of what John's referring to by commandments. And I think that's what he's calling us to do here in these verses. He's calling us to believe in Jesus and to love one another. And what's more, he's telling us that as we do these things, not only will we have assurance that we truly know the Lord, as comforting as that is, but he's also telling us that as we obey... The love of God is perfected in us. Now, I don't want us to get tripped up by the word perfected here. You see, John's not saying that the love of God reaches a sort of climax in our flawless obedience. Instead, what he's got in mind by perfected is simply the idea that the love of God, and by that I think he means our love for God, that love is brought to maturity. It reaches its goal in our obedience. And since the most natural arena for our obedience to be tested and displayed is in our relationships with one another, as John continues to develop his diagnostic in the remainder of our passage, we see him begin to focus his attention sharply on the obligation we have as followers of Jesus to love one another. And I think this is apparent when we consider what he says at the end of verse 5 through verse 6. Take a look at what he says there. He says, By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. 
Here we see John drawing on a well-known image of walking as a way of describing our behavior. It's one that he was very fond of. For example, earlier in the letter, in 1 John 1, 7, we heard him say that those who claim to have fellowship with one another ought to walk in the light. And later on in our sermon series, when we get to 2 John 4, we'll hear him rejoicing over his children who are walking in the truth. But here in verse 6, he tells us that those who say they abide in Jesus ought to walk as Jesus walked. And this begs the question, how exactly did Jesus walk? How would you answer that? Well, listen to what the Apostle Paul said to his Ephesian brothers and sisters in Ephesians 5.2. He told them to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You see, Paul understood that for Christians to walk as Jesus walked is for them to walk in self-sacrificial love. It's for them to do nothing, as he says in Philippians 2.3, from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility to count others as more significant than ourselves. And this fits beautifully with the simple Christ-centered way John himself talks about the nature of true love just a little later on in this letter in 1 John 3.16. Listen to what he says. He says, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Friends, this is what John's calling us to do here. He's calling us to imitate Jesus in our sacrificial love for one another. And of course, this means that there's simply no place in the Christian life among those who claim to be children of light for selfishness toward one another. And there's certainly no room for hatred of one another. In fact, John says quite forcefully at the end of our passage in verse 11 that whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness. And you know, none of this should come as a surprise to us as followers of Jesus. After all, in a sense, there's really nothing particularly new in this call to love one another, is there? In fact, we know that it's actually quite old, stretching all the way back to Moses and his commandment to love your neighbor as yourself in Leviticus 19. And Jesus himself repeated this very commandment to the lawyer who asked him in Matthew 22, 36, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And so we know that John's readers would have been familiar with this commandment to love one another from the time they were first taught about Jesus and his teachings. And perhaps this is why we hear John refer to it as an old commandment that you had from the beginning in verse 7. And yet I want you to notice something. Notice what he says in verse 8. He says, at the same time, it's a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Friends, did you catch that? John says that the commandment he's writing to them is new. 
Now, why would he say this after just telling them that it's old? Well, one of the reasons he says this is because Jesus himself called it new. In his farewell address in John 13, 34, he said to his disciples, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. But notice, too, that John says in verse 8 that this new commandment is true in him, referring to Jesus, and in you. Friends, I think this is especially significant. You see, what John's getting at here is the idea that this commandment to love is lived out and fulfilled within the context of the mutual abiding that now exists between Jesus and his people as a result of the Lord's faithfulness and the gracious gift of his indwelling spirit. In fact, listen to what John says a little later on in 1 John 3.24. He says, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. And this echoes what Jesus himself said earlier in John's gospel. In John 14.23, he said... If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. And of course, he does this through the indwelling of his Spirit. And you know, the gift of the Spirit, who would indwell us and empower us to walk in obedience... This is what the Lord promised long ago when he pledged to make a new covenant with his people. Listen to what the prophet Ezekiel says in that classic new covenant passage in Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27. He says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Friends, these new covenant promises have been fulfilled in the person and ministry of Jesus Christ. And so as we reckon with this commandment to love as Jesus loved, and as we struggle in our frailty to meet its demands... We need to do so in light of the victory that Jesus has already achieved and in full confidence of the abiding presence of his spirit who is our helper, the one who strengthens us and works within us to walk in obedience to the Lord. And, you know, I think this is something we all desperately need to hear as we submit ourselves to John's diagnostic this morning. After all, it's difficult to love selflessly, isn't it? Perhaps even more so when we're called to love our brothers and sisters selflessly. How easy it is for us to envy the success or circumstances of our siblings and closest friends and to secretly root for failure in their lives. How quickly we allow our disagreements over all sorts of things Like where to go to lunch? Who gets to sit in the front seat? What's a fair curfew? What to serve at a meal? How best to educate 
politics, secondary and tertiary theological issues, whatever it is, you name it, how quickly we allow these disagreements to fester in our hearts and our minds, only to erupt later in full-blown and open discord and hatred. And when we fail to love one another in these ways, it's not surprising to me, especially in light of a passage like the one we've considered this morning, that we begin to doubt whether we truly know the Lord at all. And, you know, John is calling us to be honest here. And that means that we need to be honest with ourselves if we're using the inherent difficulty of this call to love selflessly really as a way of giving license to our own weak and sinful desires and to mask the reality of our unbelief. We need to be honest about that. But dear brothers and sisters, to you who have recognized your sinfulness and who have put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, the answer when we fail to love and to walk as Jesus walked isn't to doubt and to despair. The answer is simply and humbly to acknowledge our failings and to repent of them. And to trust that Jesus is our advocate with the Father. And that he has given us his spirit to enable us to walk in his ways. And you know, this reminds me as we close of the third stanza of the beautiful little hymn that we oftentimes sing, O Jesus Sweet, O Jesus Mild. Remember how it goes? O Jesus sweet, O Jesus mild, we seek to do what you have willed. All that we have comes from above. Lord, keep us walking in your love. O Jesus sweet, O Jesus mild. Let's pray. O Heavenly Father, Once again, we bow before you. We submit ourselves to you, our Lord, our rock, and our redeemer. And we acknowledge your right to call us to obedience. And Father, we confess how often we fail to walk in obedience. But Father, we ask that you will Uh, strengthen us by your word this morning. We ask, Lord, that you will strengthen us to walk by the Spirit and the power of the Spirit. Uh, We pray all these in the precious and mighty name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.